There we are. Good morning, y'all. Morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Yes. Good to be here. I'm glad that we are all here celebrating together. This is a wonderful day. We just had what Joe and Catherine got married last night. Yeah. I managed to get out of that wedding. That was eight hours away, so I'm feeling great. Got a lot of sleep. Some of us were out till 2 a.m. last night, I think, driving back, so I managed to avoid that um, because I am preaching this morning, and so I'm glad to be here with y'all. Um, man, so as I was starting this out, my pretty much my very first thought when I was thinking about my sermon is, what type of preacher do I want to be? Do I want to just kind of be a yeller? I'm super quiet. Do I want to be kind of concentrating hick? Or do I want to actually be serious and go into the Word and actually present a good sermon? And so obviously I chose the, the funny route, and this is going to be awful. So, y'all buckle up, it's going to be a wild ride. All right, hey, if you could pull up that first slide for me, Cole. Uh, not that one, there, there should be a different one. That'll be later. There you go. Okay, so before we even wanted to really get into the sermon, I wanted to actually give you all my points so that you can write this down because every week I feel like I miss the points and that I don't know the categories that I'm supposed to be writing about and taking notes about. So if y'all take those notes, go ahead and take it. Today we're going to be talking about encouragement of the church needs, specifically encouragement to partner. And so this is a new sermon series that Nicholas Lewis came up with and then he decided to have a kid or something. So he decided to then dish all of his work off onto me and a couple other people. So he will not be preaching anything that he came up with. So hopefully I at least somewhat get what he wanted me to do. But we'll see. Like I said, this is going to be a wild ride. So first, we're going to start off with encouragement to partner with your community. And we'll hop into that here in a minute after we read the word. But then we're going to go into being encouraged to partner with the word. And we'll define what that means a little bit later. And then we're going to be talking about encouraged to partner with the Spirit. So if you could hop into the scripture, we'll go ahead and read through those first. I was assigned verses 1 through 17, but I decided to add 18 because it just didn't feel complete to me. So I'm already not listening to what I'm supposed to do, but let's do it. So Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all of the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard 
And so all the rest of that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and from rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. All right, so we're going to hop into this, and we're going to start with partnering with community. So when we first read this, you have your traditional greeting from Paul. It's Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. He's talking to the church of Philippi, everyone there, all of the believers there. And so when we're digging through this, there's really two points, sub-points that I want to get across for this point. Is that there's, what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a world of people seeking to build God's kingdom, a culture built around God's kingdom, not our kingdom, but God's kingdom. And then we're also, we're building a global family. And as we, we dig more into this, I'm excited that we get to do this together. So. <coughs> At my job, guys, there's, there's core values we all lean into, we all try and believe and live out to in our work. There's a core statement of belief and purpose. And this core statement shapes where we are going, what we're doing, and why we're doing it. I'm not only at my job to make money, but I'm also there to help people. Because we're helping people whose businesses have been destroyed by cyber criminals. And so what this does, it actually creates, creates a group think that we all think about accomplishing this same goal. This group think is exactly what forms around the gospel when a community is around it. When we come together as a community, we all think the same way about it because we are trying to accomplish the same thing. And so group think is generally used as a negative term. It's used in critiques of extremist groups, and political parties, religious groups. People that you generally don't agree with, they're in group think. You always say that the other side is in group think. I want to have a little bit more of a nuanced view of that. When applied properly to correct ideas, groupthink is a beautiful mechanism for good. When you have people come together around things that are good, then you can create amazing things out of it because you have a massive group doing it. I played sports until college. I decided not to play college football and one of the best decisions I ever made. But I learned a ton about sports. And if you want to ask more about why I talked to Alexander and all of the various things he still has to deal with, from playing sports. But what this meant, and what I learned, is I had to defer my wants and my day-to-day passions for the good of the team constantly. I really didn't want to be there practicing for three hours on a Tuesday, every single Tuesday, from literally 4 p.m. until 9 p.m. I was basically there, focused on sports. And they fed during that time. Like, there was good things, too. But I was doing that after a hard day of being up at I don't know, 6.30 in the morning, and then going to school, and then playing sports. And some of y'all have played sports your entire life and know that life. It's hard, it sucks, you're only there for the community and the team. But then we were also there for a greater goal. We were there to win, and then also to become better men. And now, there were some really impressive athletes on my team, and I'll actually talk about this some more later, but the ones that always impressed me were the ones that internalized the mottos and the goals of the team and really stepped in and led from that. 
So three out of the four years I played and played football in high school, we were in the state championship. We were a really good team. And I got blessed to be part of amazing coaches, amazing players, amazing people. My sophomore year, we went 15 and 0. We were ranked top 50 in the nation. We won state. Really, no one contested us at all except for the final game where we had a really close, amazing state championship game. One of my favorite memories. And we were pretty much that good until my senior year. The class above us had, I think, seven D1 athletes, and then my class had zero. <laughs> the class below us had one lineman. And then the class below them, the sophomores, they had five or six D1 athletes. They were really good, but they were sophomores when I was a senior. So that being said, we started about, I think we started 0-2, hadn't won a game at that point for the first time in seven years. We started with a defeated record. We literally had teams that we were killing the year before come and meet us, and then teams that were mocking us because we had started so bad. They would have had signs held up telling us how bad we were because of how far we had fallen. So I want to say that we did incredible and we turned around and won state that year. And honestly, we did. We didn't win state, but we had an incredible year. And we turned it around. We actually went from, I think, a, a two and five record to finishing seven and seven with a 500 record, made it to the semifinals, lost on a fluke where I got called a holding penalty. That was definitely not a holding penalty. We got a touchdown return. And man, it, it kills me to this day. But we were not the talented team. We were not the athletic team. We had some amazing athletes, but they were all young. We all were inexperienced. Who really led us through this were our coaches. They coached us in the way that was right. And we had a single-minded determinism, a group think that we developed where we were going to listen to them and we were going to accomplish what they told us together as a community. There was not a single one of us that carried the team. It was a group of us. There's a, a friend of mine back from college that likes to say that year is the year that our coaches proved that they were good coaches mm -hmm. because they didn't have expert athletes. They proved that as a community come together that we could actually do something. And so we ended the year being in the top four in the league because not because we were athletically the top four in the league, but because as a team, we deserve to be in the top four of the league. And this is a, in a lot of ways draws similar parallels to how we should treat the gospel and how we should live out the gospel. We were given a cultural mandate to spread the gospel to the world and we need to do that together. And the same timeless principles do apply that I learned from football to the gospel and how we did it. We do this in a community and there is no other choice. In order to be successful in the propagation of the gospel, it has to be done with the community in mind. Otherwise, we lose the holistic picture of God's kingdom. And I often fall into this trap that God is only mad at the world and wants to cleanse it. But that's actually not his plan. He wants to build his kingdom here. Ultimately, he is coming back to this earth for us to be with him forever in a community that is worshiping and partnered with him. And so our goal now is to change our community, to give him a gift that is ready for him, that is worthy of him. And while we will not do that individually, we will strive to do that in community. And so y'all, switching a little bit here, we're still talking about community. I wanna talk about the, the idea of, of family a little bit. 
you know, I've been, I've been married for about four years now, and so that makes me obviously an expert at it. I'm really good at it, trust me, just ask AJ. So there's a couple things about being married, and if you aren't married yet, you'll get to experience this later in your life, of where when you're married, you have a partner. I share things with her. That's good, bad, ugly, things I'm excited about, things I'm not excited about, and usually that's really, really good. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's really painful. But we're going through this life together, and God willing, we will have each other for a long time. And through this, we've developed a knowledge of each other. AJ and I have been together for almost eight years now, and so we've been married for four of those, and we've really, like, we're close. We know each other. And we don't always agree, but we are in this together. But that being said, I don't always make the decisions like I'm married and have a four-month-old. If I was running my life, I would probably wake up at 5 a.m., I'd go for a run, and then I'd probably work for about 10 hours, and then I'd take a nap, go work out, go play frisbee, go to jiu-jitsu class, then I'd read a little bit, watch some jiu-jitsu, YouTube, and then go to sleep. That sounds great. It's an awesome life for me, but that's a terrible life for a family. And we have to remember that we are a community. Yeah. And when we focus only on ourselves and what is good to ourselves, then we lose sight of how we are trying to build this entire community together yeah. for Christ. This is not that life that I just described. If you talk to the world, that is a good life. That is a great life. And honestly, I would have a lot of fun living that life. But that is not the life that we are called to. We are called to a life of community, called to a life of putting the other first. We have to remember that we are in this together. So as a gospel-centered church, that means everything flows out of the gospel and the teachings of Jesus. We have to actually understand a little bit of the ancient context and history here. And this word knowing a little bit of Greek really does help us understand what's happening. So before I even started sermon prepping about two weeks ago, I learned something about Greek that really made a lot of this way more clear for me. So... Often, the word we read as you is a plural you, more like y'all. As you notice, that's the part of suddenness that has stuck with me. So in older English, you would say thee or thine for a singular you and you for a plural you. However, in our current modern English, we don't really have that written into how we talk unless you say things like y'all or you ins. Yes. So we turn this to back to the, the scripture that we're looking at now. This turns something like Philippians 1.6 from I am confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to I am confident that he who began a good work in y'all will bring it to completion. <laughs> this is a communal changing. The Holy Spirit is changing us as a community. We are being changed, not just one of us. And so while we know the New Testament is often addressed to congregation, we forget that it is not reading just to us. We apply it to our own lives, and that's not wrong. But we forget the context of this is everyone. We are all coming up together. This is a communal plan, and you are not the center of it. And so I want to I move on to verse 7 now as we, we talk about I'll just read it to get us, get us into it. And even it is right for me to be thus minded on behalf of you all, because I have in my heart inasmuch as both 
and my bonds in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers with me of grace. Notice that ye there, replace it with y'all. So we are partakers of grace. There is a fellowship around the good news. This is a communal good news. This is a communal societal good news. We are a congregation of similarly-minded people that are seeking the same ends, to seek Christ glorified and to bring his kingdom here on earth. And so as we're driven to be more Christ-like by the Holy Spirit that's given to us, we're not only doing this with our local community, we are actually joining a larger network of believers. We are joining the global family of believers. We are partakers of the same grace that allows suffering, the truly persecuted and the martyrs to endure, and not only endure, but to live at peace while they're tormented. And that same grace is our grace. We share in that suffering, even if we don't experience it. And we can have compassion for those people in that suffering, even if we don't experience it. But this also means we are not only capable of endurance and character growth, but we are a family with them. We are a global family. And so when we work together for the gospel, we are joining God's inner circle, the global church. Everyone in the global church is God's inner circle. We are that family. And so when someone accepts the great call of following Jesus and bringing his kingdom here to earth, they join in our grace and our spiritual family. And we work to make that family as large as possible so that the grace received can be as large as possible so that our family will be as large as possible. And so as we happen to partnering with the word and talking about that, make sure to keep thinking about how you would do this in community. So starting in verse 8, For God is my witness, how long, how long after you all in the tender mercies of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Paul is praying that we would grow in both love and knowledge and discernment. So how do we grow in these things? Well, we, we have to grow closer to Jesus. We have to, in order to grow in that relationship, we do need yeah. some frame of reference, though, and some working knowledge of who he is. So I often hear in today's culture, even in the church some places, and I have close family that has said this, and people that I, I love dearly who have, who have said this, that I don't really need to read the Bible in order to have a relationship with God. I can understand it without that. And... God, obviously, is, is definitely powerful enough to move and speak outside of Scripture. But this is how he has given us a consistent record of who he is. This is how we draw with consistency. How do I know what God is? It's what it says in the Scripture. And we can't disregard that. If we want to partner with Christ, we have to do our due diligence to grow in knowledge of who he is through the Word. And through that, we have to grow in discernment of how to use it, too. So I was doing a little bit of research on, on how do we learn things, and this has been a, a big part of my life is learning how to learn. And so there's a quote that really helped me understand memory in an interesting way is, memory is the ongoing process of information retention over time. Right? So as you want to memorize something, you generally learn it over time. It's very few people can read a page of a book and remember that entire page of a book. You have to memorize it over time, and eventually it sticks into you. And we'll talk a little bit about why that is here in a minute. But first, I want to talk a little bit about what I was like as a kid. So back to high school, back to socially awkward Rook before he was able to actually talk. 
Man, yo, I've always been pretty good at school. I'm, I've been okay. Not usually the best student, but I've been, I've been able to hold my own. And that was the case until I switched schools. In high school, so in middle school, I was doing great. And then high school, I switched schools. Things fell apart. And I learned real quick how misguided my view of my own intelligence was. And I had to learn how to do this thing called hard work. And y'all, it sucked. I would go to school at seven, I'd be in class all day, and then I'd go have to practice, like I said earlier, right? So uh, I practice, I would be there from 3.30, 4 till 7.30 at night at a minimum. And then, especially early on in my high school career, I would play freshman games, JV games, and varsity games. So I'd be playing three football games a week. And so on Tuesdays, when they decided to schedule them on the, the hardest day of practice as well, I wouldn't get home till 8.30 or 9. And then I was in advanced classes that I didn't have time to do the homework. You know, so I decided to stay up for another two hours. But of course, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go watch people play video games instead. So I didn't want to sleep. I just wanted to watch people play video games. So what that meant is, shocker, I didn't usually do my math homework. I would have said, go watch people play video games. And then the next day, I would scramble to get my homework done. And then it would come in, I'd probably get a 60% on the homework. There'd be a quiz to see if I actually did the work. And I think I failed that quiz nine times out of 10. So this really burst my bubble of, of thinking, okay, maybe I don't need to work hard to understand this stuff. Maybe I would just actually be a secret genius, figure it all out, and everyone would just love me because of how smart I am. And I'd be so cool and popular. And so through this, you can see that I, as a young kid, or I guess 14-year-old, I lacked a lot of discernment. I really didn't understand what was going on and how this whole thing worked. And so I had to learn. And it, honestly, it took me a long time. And there are mistakes I made from that early period that hurt me when it came to college. Like there were scholarships that I lost because of that inability to learn how to do it early on that I wish I had done it earlier. But from that, I really did learn. And so pedagogy is the study of learning. And so much of our learning is actually done subconsciously. And so people claim the studies show that we can roughly focus on 40 to 50 bits of information while our subconscious processes the remaining 11 to 40 million that we study. So imagine this in, in millimeters. Let's say 11 millimeters is roughly this big, right? If you were gonna multiply that out, when I did the math earlier, I'm pretty sure it gets you to about seven miles of difference. So if you're imagining you can focus on this, but you're actually processing seven miles of information, that's a lot going on in your subconscious. So what that means for us is we have to look at how Paul told us to study here specifically. Paul encourages the life of the mind, and that's a life of information acquisition, and then a life of the spirit which is actually application of that knowledge. I read a book on Romans one time that really argued that Paul was systematically demonstrating the mind focused on God as being free, while the mind focused on the flesh was enslaved. I would put it in language like this, that as you consciously study how God desires us to be, your unconscious mind will train you to be more like him, freeing you from the flesh. The people who are set free from sin removed from darkness into light, and we're truly able to see the world for what it is, a beautiful mess that God saw as worth resurrecting. 
And so God wants people to have both knowledge and discernment. He wants us to grow in that love, which includes knowledge and discernment. He knows that if we're going to be a people who spread the gospel, we need to be a people who reflect Christ as image bearers. And to be excellent image bearers, we have to know the image we bear and then actually bear that name. That's the wisdom and the discernment, the knowledge and the application. So we represent Christ, but we have to know him to be able to actually represent him. Could you imagine representing somebody that you don't know? If I was going to go say for John Nation over there, who I actually know, but pretend I don't for a second, and I was going to go present him for a job interview, but I don't know him, how am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to spew lies that I know nothing about, and then he's going to get there and actually be way better than I said he was. Right? So it'll look good on me, but that's besides the point. I still misrepresented him. And so I really want to emphasize this part about discernment. Knowledge without discernment is basically useless in a lot of places. It, it still has its place. We need the knowledge, but if you don't have discernment to apply it, it, it really is not very useful. And so I don't want to get too much into the, the technical details of this, but we're going to talk about AI for a second. And so if you've seen the AI, specifically large language models, like the chatbots, like ChatGPT, you see how powerful they are, how useful they can be. And they're going to be everywhere, honestly. AI already touches a lot of what we do, but it's going to be even more integrated into our lives. We'll have it in uses for medical care, which is already there, but it will be used even more. We'll have robot burger chefs, and we'll have people writing sermons using AI. <laughs> and so I can't emphasize how useful some of this stuff like large language models is. It's, I use it in my work all the time. It's extremely useful. But it's like talking to a genius two-year-old. This two-year-old has a 160 IQ, incredibly smart, can do calculus before it ate food. But it has no common sense at all. The only common sense that an AI truly has it to it is coded into it manually by humans that search on keywords to say, hey, if you see this keyword, they're probably trying to do something malicious. Don't do it. However, there are ways to bypass it that involve telling a story, playing a game with the AI, that you can get it to do anything malicious that you want. And so again, not gonna get into technical details because I'm not trying to get anyone here in trouble, but you really can get an AI to do bad things. And that's a, a huge worry with AI. If it doesn't have the common sense to do this, how can we let it be semi-autonomous? And so this, if we apply it to humans, if we have all sorts of knowledge, but no sort of discernment to use it, how are we going to be effective? We're just going to be bludgeoning people with the truth. And so that means we have to grow not only in knowledge, but also in discernment. And that means application of that knowledge. And so this is how we grow in love with, with God, is knowledge of him first, and then discernment of how to use that love. And so then we have to ask, how do we grow in discernment? So I wanna, I'm going to start here in John 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
This is how we're encouraged to partner with the gospel, knowing the word. The one who gave us the good news. And when I say the word, I mean the word as in how John is using it, which means Christ. We have to know both the words of Christ and we have to know Christ if we're going to grow in discernment. When Jesus says to us, teach others what I have taught to you from the Great Commission, he's telling us to apply knowledge in real world situations. To make disciples is to take the knowledge that we have and then apply it to real world situations and help people grow in doing that themselves. The gospel is knowledge that can be applied in all situations. It's timeless truths to hold on to and to hold dear to. They become a platform that we build the rest of our lives on. They are the rock that we build our house on. So we have to know the word intimately for it to, for it is our treasure of knowledge for how to deal with the world. But then we must also discern truly in order to actually apply love. Again, important why we're doing this in community, not in our own. I bet we can all think of a time where we had this great idea and then we realized later when talking to other people how great of an idea it actually was. And this is instilled over us by God over the course of our lifetimes. And so if we listen and let goodness have its full effect, meaning that we act on what we learn, then we will grow into people who become like Christ, a community known by our love. And we see a genuine example of this lifestyle from Paul. Paul exhibits a genuine desire for the good of these people he's caring for and loving. And that good is honestly pretty much never material gain, but instead wisdom, knowledge, and discernment. So let's talk more about this. In verse 10, it says, So that ye may approve the things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and void of offense into the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are through Jesus Christ, unto the glory and the praise of God. Paul's interest is in creating a people who are ready for Christ's return. And this requires a knowledge of right and wrong, the social truth to gather that from. Now, I do believe that you can understand biblical truths from non-biblical sources. It's one of the beautiful things about the narrative of the Bible is we tend to copy it everywhere. So we'll have various novels and books that are just a replication of the great story that he has been telling us. One of my favorites of these books is The Way of Kings. It, it follows a thread of a bunch of characters who are called into this story of being held to complex and nuanced standards of truth. They have to integrate it into their lives and then live those ideas out as they face moral and spiritual evils and as they fight those moral and spiritual evils. These are the ideals. In the book, they're called the ideals. And they have to swear almost a loyalty to these ideals, obviously not pulling theology from it, but you can still get an interesting narrative. But these ideals hold them together as they face various tests. And these, these stories grip us as humans and always have because they conform to the life we live. We have a similar experience to how we deal with God. And so I've read this series several times. It's called The Stormlight Archives. If you haven't read it, you really should. It's really an amazing series. And every time I read it, I come away with an appreciation for the challenges God has placed in my life and in the world of how great a God that we love, that he can take us from broken beings to being holy like yeah. And he does this by having us focus on the good. Mm. A pattern through the Bible is God giving us chances to live like the ideal of him, Christ, and then us falling down the ladder, us forgetting, us misstepping. And so every time I see a character fall in these books, I hurt for them. I hurt for them because I know that's me. I know I would make the same wrong decisions as them in the novel. 
And so this is the beauty of God's grace, is we fall, he redeems, and we become more like him through that process. It's that process of sanctification. And through knowing and practicing his words, we integrate his ideals into our lives, and we develop a mind that is like his. Like what Paul was saying earlier, our mind becomes like Christ as we study him, and as we integrate him into our lives. Our actions then truly become unto the glory and the praise of God. And so if you want your actions to be for God, then you have to read the book. You have to know what it says. You have to know why he came, and you have to know why he chose his words. And then you have to be able to take this narrative step of applying what he did and saying, if Jesus was living my life, what would he be doing? Would he be working right now? Or would he be helping somebody? Would he be reading this theology? Would he be watching anime? Would he be watching Netflix? Would he be playing PS5? And sometimes he might. He legitimately might. But I guarantee you, there's a lot of times we make decisions that would not be what Christ does. Yeah. And so to be able to make those decisions in any sort of wisdom, we have to know what he says and then try and process all of our ideas and actions through what he says. So the Holy Spirit does a work of hardening in us in our lives. And I really want to emphasize the wording of perfected until the day of Christ, which is back to what we were saying earlier in Philippians. This is an ongoing process that we will not escape from if we choose to follow him. Proverbs says the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. Life is a crucible. It's designed to purify us, and it's hard. It really is hard. And that's something having a kid has really opened my eyes to. Life is hard. But the reward is goodness and peace and perseverance and joy and love and patience and gentleness and self-control. And the reward is him. And so I hope he's begun this good work in your heart. And if he has, let that joy overflow. Enjoy the process. Don't be haughty about it, but share your joy and embrace the process of becoming like the instructions in Romans 12, 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cleave to that which is good. So at this point, y'all, we've talked about partnering with community and absorbing the ideas of the team. But do you ever consider yourself a true disciple of the word? A disciple is one who submits to and learns from. There are promises in the scripture for the life that you actually want, which is a life of endurance and hardship, patience, perseverance, character growth. But if you want those things, you have to let the word infect you if you are going to receive those promises. Jesus says, if you love me, I will, you will listen to my commands. And the gospel is the good news. And it's not only for spiritual salvation, but it's salvation on this earth from how we view the world. Not only breaking free, not breaking free from hardship, but instead being able to thrive despite it. In hardship, we thrive because we know the basis. We know the word. We have the character growth. We have the ideals that we cling to because he has given them to us. And we've studied them. And so we have to bring those into our lives and internalize them if we want this. And so that righteousness that we're talking about right now, that is found in Jesus. Peace is discovered in Jesus. Love is discovered in Jesus. And it is discovered through his words. And it's discovered through the word. 
So you have to partner with the word if you are going to be a follower of Jesus. Right. If you want to call yourself right. a Christian, you have to know the word if you want the full benefit of that. All right, on into partnering with the Spirit. So starting in verse 12. Now I would have you know, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the progress of the gospel, so that my bonds became manifest in Christ throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to all of the rest. I'll be honest with y'all, this is the one I struggle with the most. So what does it look like to partner with the Spirit in our day-to-day lives? Can we actually trust him to move? Like, what actually is the spirit? A lot of us don't really know. We don't really know what to do with that part of scripture a lot of times. We see him as this thing that comes in and causes disruption, heals people. We really are not sure what it looks like and manifests. Is it different now, today, than it was before? And I'm not going to answer most of those questions. But in my mind, the spirit is a little bit of the X factor. I think we do need to start with a little bit of understanding of our relationship to the Spirit. And so I want to go back to talking about working in an organization. And Cole, if you could pull up that other slide now, the one that you pulled up the first time. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about engineering management here for a second. <laughs> so if, if y'all don't know, I graduated from SNC with an engineering management degree and a computer science minor. And that being said, I don't use engineering management at all. I work in cybersecurity. I do nothing to do with engineering management at this point. However, this has always stuck with me when you're thinking about organizations. And there's this thing called the BCG matrix. So the Boston Consulting Group is a, just their consulting group. They're really well known. They've come up with a, a bunch of different business tactics that people really pay attention to. And so you have this graph here where you have market growth on the left and then relative market share on the right are going towards the left. So you're going up into that top left corner is where you want to be. So a star is something with high market growth and high market share. A cash cow is something with low market growth but high market share. Question mark is something with high market growth but low share so it could turn into something big one day and then a dog has none of those you don't want to be a dog all of the rest of them are okay but just don't be a dog if you're ready to think from a sermon you're not a dog so basically there's some products are stars some are cash cows some are question marks and then there's the ones that might one day grow into something with their dog right now and probably aren't going to turn into anything. But the Spirit leads the church in an organization that often looks a lot like this. So the Spirit, if you think of him as the CEO or the, just the, we'll say the leader of the organization, then there are times where he says certain things that this is exactly what we're going to do, this is the plan, we're going to go through it step by step like this, and then there's other times where it says, okay, this is where we need to get. I'm not going to tell you how, how we get there, but we need to get there. And when you have those times, you have to look back on your past and say, okay, you've led me well so far. We've gotten places so far. And so I'm going to trust that you have an idea of how we're going to get to this place that we have no clue of where we're going. And I'll, you say, I will do it. 
you follow the Spirit. And so back to why I'm actually talking about the BCG matrix, it's, if we're gonna put Paul on this matrix, we would call him a star, right? He's killing it, basically. He's writing, he's encouraging, he's responding, and he's growing an infant church. But then he ends up in jail, and that's it. He's in jail, what's he, what's he gonna do? So I got kind of curious and went down a little bit of a rabbit hole about Roman jail. And there basically were, were two basic forms of it, where you have your house arrest, you're a Roman citizen, you're all good, everything's fine. And Paul was a Roman citizen, but from reading this passage, it really sounds like he's around a lot of other people. I would say that he's likely in the worst form of Roman jail, the pit. And so it was either house arrest or you're in a pit. So obviously house arrest is better, but if you're in a pit, you're surrounded by a bunch of people. So in the pit, he's surrounded by convicts, he's surrounded by guards. But in this, he says, Paul's true bonds, his bond of spirit, was evident to the entirety of the prison guard, guard and prisoner. And we read that in verse 13. So that my bonds were manifest in Christ throughout the whole Praetorian guard and to all the rest. What the enemy meant for good was used by the Spirit. Or sorry, what the enemy meant for evil was used by the Spirit for good. Yeah. Right? In verse 14, And that most of the brethren in the Lord, being confident through my bonds, are more abundantly bold to speak the word of God without fear. The Spirit moved through Paul's imprisonment. And the other believers were strengthened in their witness. Here in my version that I'm reading right now, it says they spoke without fear. In the ESV, I think it says something slightly different, where they spoke, were much more bold to speak the word. With, oh, it says without fear. Okay, yeah. So it says it without fear. So think about that. When was the last time you spoke the word, the gospel, without any sort of fear, without any sort of fear of rejection, or any sort of just nervousness that it's just not going to go well? The Spirit uses that situations to build faith so that we can speak without fear because he's been good to us. And this was a people that really took Jesus seriously when he said, do not fear the ones who destroy your mortal body, but instead fear the one who can destroy your soul. And they really understood that men were not to be feared, but instead our trust is in God. So in 15, it says, Some indeed preach Christ of envy and strife and some of good will. The one do it of love, knowing that I'm set free for the defense of the gospel. I'm set for the defense of the gospel. But the other proclaim Christ of fashion, not sincerely, thinking to raise up affliction for me and my bonds. And what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and therein I rejoice. Yeah, I will rejoice. Paul is rejoicing that Christ is proclaimed regardless of intention. Because there is those who will hear, there are those who will hear the truth, and the Spirit will work with that truth, regardless of the situation and how they heard it. Ultimately, God will not be frustrated. If you want something, it will happen. He obviously wants us to work with him, and that is our choice. That is where we can choose to partner with him in this and partner in the spirit with this. But if we don't, we are missing an opportunity to partner with the Holy Spirit, the Helper. We're missing one of His great promises. And so He's constantly inviting us to listen to Him and to know Him, but often we don't actually listen to Him. 
So we have to ask ourselves, do we want to live with the Spirit's direction and partner with Him? Or do we want to live with our own wisdom? And so I'm preaching this on myself more than anyone else in the room because I am so guilty of this, y'all. Do we really want to partner with a God who might bring you to prison? A God that might make you witness to convicts? Or honestly worse, your family? (laughs) However, it is in those moments where God shines through when the Spirit moves in power and authority. The Spirit issue ties us together, y'all. Community, word, missions, church, without the Spirit, all I'm saying is talk. Without the Spirit, this is just a social group. We're just here to enjoy community with each other, which is not wrong. But without Him, this doesn't have meaning beyond that. That's right. Without the Spirit, honestly, y'all, this is just a book. He's what brings life to this. It's the Holy Spirit who brings life to the words of Scripture. And otherwise, they are just beautiful words. Even if they are helpful, they're just beautiful words. Thank God we have the Spirit. Man, there's a story of Moody. He's the founder of the Moody Bible Institute. And he always attributes his success to the Spirit. He's pretty consistent saying, I didn't really do anything. This is all the Spirit's work. So he talks about having a time before where he really didn't seek the Spirit's help and then having the Spirit's help after. And it went from largely unknown to evangelizing to thousands across the world. And when someone came to see how he was so successful, they told him, this is obviously God's hand on your life. There is no relation between your personality and your success. So next time you want to compliment someone and say that God's doing good work, make sure to really rip them down. <laughs> so, y'all, in, in the worship team, you can go ahead and start coming on up if they want to. I grew up hearing stories of missionaries who never saw any salvation for years. And then it exploded after years of dry ministry, years of prayer. The Spirit works in His time and in His way, and our job is to open ourselves of vessels of His grace. It's going to be done regardless, so why wouldn't you want to be a part of it? I really want to ask that seriously. If, if you want to be a part of this, you have to say yes to Him. You can't just say, I'm a Christian, make me part of it. You have to take that step of providing yourself as the vessel to do it. So God has placed many avenues of encouragement and accountability for us, and that is community, the Word, the Spirit, are just a few. But to me, they are probably the most important ones that we have to live with daily. We have to be daily in the Word, we have to be daily around community, and we have to be daily praying to and listening to the Spirit. But they don't exist in a vacuum. They all are interconnected and relate to each other. They rely on one another for the full expression of our faith in Jesus. If we're not living in community, we have no opportunity to follow the second greatest commandment of love your neighbor as yourself. If you're not in the word, we have no capacity to learn about Jesus and to apply his teachings. In Isaiah, it says, Oh, that you would pay attention to my commands. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. And finally, if we do not work with the Spirit, not only are we missing the lover of our soul, but we are missing opportunities to live a life of kingdom power, a life that takes ground away from the enemy and creates God's kingdom here on earth. 
If we choose to partner with these things, as we're encouraged to do, there's not only the promises of God for glory and eternity, but there are countless examples of people who've lived faithfully for God, who have gone on to leave a legacy that they could have never created for themselves. A legacy built on partnering is one worth building. So, y'all, I'm going to end this with just a couple of questions to really think about as we're going into the rest of our week. Really search yourself and ask, am I partnered with community? Am I in a small group? Do I have community with like-minded goals to accomplish good works, to give as a gift to God? And then know the word, both in spirit and truth. Live it out. Learn to live with discernment. Go make mistakes and then ask for forgiveness and keep on learning. And then open your heart and mind to the spirit acting in ways that you don't expect. And don't be afraid to take risks for the kingdom. First gift. Let's pray, y'all. Yeah, Father, we are grateful for this time. We're grateful for your spirit. We're grateful for this community. We're grateful for your words so that we can grow to be more like you. Father, I just am honored that I get to even preach your word, honestly. This is a a blessing and a privilege, and I pray that it's one that we all take seriously and we all strive to serve you in the way that we can. Father, be with us as we live our lives, and thank you for the goodness and the glory of the things to come. We love you, God. Amen. Amen.